For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff from Atavist. I'm here with Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer from Longform. Hey, guys. It's a beautiful day. Gorgeous day here in New York. It is. It's a springtime day. Yeah. Evan, who'd you talk to for the podcast this week? This week, I talked to Ted Conover, who will be well-known, I believe, probably, to most of our listeners. But um, if you haven't read anything by Ted Conover, you should probably start with New Jack, I would say, where he was a prison guard for uh, a substantial period of time uh, undercover. So um, he does a lot of undercover stories. He's written for Harper's for years. He's written for The New Yorker. He's written several books, all of which are wonderful. What else is wonderful? Our sponsor, Tiny Letter, from the good people at MailChimp. Thanks, guys. Here's Evan and Ted. So first, uh, welcome. Thanks. Thanks for doing this. Thank you. Um, I have questions I've been waiting to ask you a really long time, but I think the best way into them is to talk about this piece that you have in Harper's right now, because it's an undercover piece, and uh, it's also, it really gets at a social issue in a way that, uh, is that a social issue? Meet? I think it's a social, social issue. issue. I, okay. I think it is. Um, so first, why don't you just like sum up the story a little bit, and then we'll kind of go from there. So. Sure. The meat story. Yeah. Yeah. So I eat meat. Uh, <laughs> always have my when, mom. When did you begin to eat meat? <laughs> my mom served me big helpings, which were more than I wanted. But uh, This actually is relevant. That, I, it the is. The fact that you eat meat is extremely relevant. To Everybody asks me now. Out. Everybody says, do you still eat it? And I, uh, I'm not sure I'm proud of still eating it, but it seemed a bit beyond my power to stop on a dime like that. So now I... I eat it and think bad thoughts sometimes. <laughs> but um, anyway, this story started, as others of mine have, with a desire to go somewhere hidden that I wasn't supposed to see. And not just to see it, but to be a part of it. And this is something I've wanted to do many times. I am uh, I didn't become a journalist because I wanted to ask questions so much as because I wanted to uh, to learn and see things firsthand and, and be there myself. Mm-hmm. And as much as possible to put myself in the shoes of somebody uh, whose life was pretty different from mine. So... And was the... Was the when you say the subject, was it... Did, did you first say I want to know what happens in slaughterhouses or did you first look at uh, meat in a grocery store and say actually yeah the, the latter I wanted to know how this got made how how did it get here uh, and you know Michael Pollan did a fantastic piece once in which he bought a steer I'm pretty sure and yeah I remember that New York Times magazine yeah, yeah. I think yeah and uh, it had a number and 
its owners and handlers let him follow it from the ranch to the feedlot to the slaughterhouse. And that's a great idea. Um, and I'm not the first one to pursue employment in a slaughterhouse to get a closer look at it. You know, there's been at least a couple of well-known pieces. Tony Horwitz uh, did it for the Wall Street Journal. Charlie LaDuff briefly for the New York Times. Mm. Um, both of them got work in slaughterhouses, but briefly. And I understand briefly because most slaughterhouse work is really hard on your arms mm -hmm. and on your hands. Most of it involves holding a knife in one hand and um, sometimes a hook in the other hand. That's how it was for me too. And cutting, cutting, cutting the same motion all day long. And most of us who have not uh, done that much have trouble with it and it starts to hurt and you, and it, you don't want to do it after a couple of days. So I thought, I'd have a, a chance of a better immersion if I could get a different kind of slaughterhouse job. And research told me that there were inspectors in every slaughterhouse. The USDA places them there. The slaughterhouse by law can't operate without inspectors on the line, mm -hmm. on the chain, mm -hmm. looking at different points at, at the product as it passes before our eyes. And, um, and I looked into it, and you either need experience, at least a year's experience in like quality control in a meat factory or as a butcher, that you know relevant experience, or you need a four-year degree that has enough math and science to somehow qualify you to look at meat and cut into it. Which um, I thought maybe I had my there was some ambiguity there, and I turned them turned in my uh, Amherst College transcript, and they told me no. <laughs> I was short. I was short four credits. So uh, I've been so hoping. You just, uh, yeah. But I, I want to stop yeah, you there because I feel like this is, from a reporter's perspective, something that people, I, or I and probably other people wonder. Um, and this was true at New Jack with New Jack too, which we can talk about in a bit. But you, you just submitted an application to be a meat inspector, right? Upon that application, you put as your. Like, did it ask for resume, past experience? Yes. What, what what did you put on that application? So the rule is you can't lie. That's what ABC News did wrong with the Food Lion case where they placed operatives in a meat department of a southern grocery store chain. Mm -hmm. You can't lie. Uh, ABC got ultimately convicted of fraud in that case. Um, and I have been through this before uh it may it helps to have a friend who's a lawyer and mm -hmm. uh is familiar with these issues but i had a friend like that from back in the new jack days and he was helpful to me with this project too and said you know tell the truth and and that gives you some leeway because um you Evan ratliff have have done a number of things in your life i imagine and there are a number of ways to describe it all of them truthful i um I presently teach writing courses at NYU, and I said I was a teacher. Mm -hmm. And I listed NYU, I think without spelling out what that means, uh, as an employer on my, on my job application. Um, uh, but these applications don't ask, have you written books? <laughs> have you published investigative articles in national magazines? They don't ask that. So, And the people that look at them don't google because 
if you Google your name, your website comes up yeah. first and We're, it's pretty clear what you do. Right. So the rise of the internet has made this more difficult yeah. because people who think to Google you can quickly find out a lot. My legal name is not uh, Ted Conover. My first name is different. Uh, and that is probably a great blessing uh, that my parents uh, gave me uh, when they named me after my dad. So Ted's a nickname. Uh, and I, they do ask your nickname. Uh, oh, really? Yeah, oh. so that's on there. But um, my legal name turns up less uh -huh. when you Google it. Is and your legal name something that you keep secret? In some way? Not really, though. I'd just as soon not yeah, say it I'm here. not going to ask it. No. But, I'm, uh, I'm... You could figure it out in about five minutes, I think, online. So, uh, But a search of that name would not turn up your work as easily. It would probably turn up my dad. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, uh, so that's a help. If you go, if you're a writer and you go by your legal name, that's a little trickier because you have to use it. You can't get around it. And right. um, in fact, I know Harper's was, when I signed on to sell this, sell them this piece, they were working with a writer who was actually thinking of legally changing his name uh, to avoid this problem. Wow. So people do go to some links. Uh, and I know there have been animal rights activists who've done surreptitious filming in factories who have changed their names. I talked to one of them before I started. So, well, the other thing that struck me when thinking about how you must have done this was just that you, because you've done past stories like this, you actually have job experience that you could put on there. Like, did you yeah. put on there? I once worked as a prison guard. That, absolutely. Corrections. Yes. And if you're a freelance writer uh, surviving, however you may you probably have jobs in your past like tutoring at stanley kaplan which is part of my past or um i, I managed an apartment building for several years so i'd have free rent and i um i taught aerobics classes way back in the day i mean we we do dirty things to stay going right um jazzercise how, how far back are we talking <laughs> I did not do jazzercise. <laughs> um, but your problem here was that you were not qualified for this job. Right. So they, you, were, you were starting to say you initially you got rejected. And, right, because I didn't have enough college credits. They basically were looking for science and math credits, and I didn't quite have them. So, hmm. uh, so, so I had to fix that. How so? I took a, a distance learning course for credit from the University of Illinois, uh, pre-calc, trig, which I had gotten a poor grade on in high school. Um, it was like a second chance to, uh, <laughs> to do better at trigonometry. And, um, and I did. I got a B plus. Congratulations. Significantly That's, better. Thank you. That is, I, that is not what I... I did not expect that you actually had gone back and taken math classes in order to, to qualify yourself. That's... Yeah. In fact, as I, I was then driving around uh, beef producing states like Kansas and Nebraska, and at night in my motels, I'd take, I'd do a little work on my math course. Uh, I wanted to know what town I wanted to be in because they, they let you state a preference. Oh, I see. So Dodge City, I thought would be a great one. Um, Lexington, Nebraska. Schuyler came up late in the process. That's where I ended up. But it, you know, it matched what I was after, which was a, 
the kind of small town that American meat production moved to from big cities like Chicago after World War II because there were, there were good highways, there were good you know trucks to move cattle before it was trains. So labor um, was cheaper in the countryside and, and all these beef companies relocated, all mm-hmm. meat companies of every sort. And then I wanted the kind of town, which is almost all of them, that had been mostly Caucasian until the 70s. And then when wages suddenly dropped, uh, the workforce changed to mostly Latino. And all these towns rapidly had this huge dislocating demographic shift. And I thought a town like that would be really the place to be. So I... And the, yeah, this, this story, it's really happening on three levels or maybe more, but there's the story of meat and how meat is processed mm-hmm. and what happens inside the plant. There's the labor story of what happened to the workers in general in these plants and right. demographic changes and all that. And then there's this sort of personal story of the people that you work with every day. Right. And so you must have known in picking that town that you wanted to do all three of those. Absolutely. Uh, so I figured, yeah, my work in the factory is probably the number one thing that will make a reader interested because this is a chronic problem. If you want to write about something a little bit unpleasant, like um, meat production or its cousin, uh, the criminal justice system, (laughs) I mean, these are, you know, they're not entertainment tonight type stories. You don't, uh, you don't have an automatic audience and you have to make it intriguing. And, um, a solution for me several times has been to put myself in a situation and let the reader sort of see it as I see it and, and bring, try to bring them along as I deal with whatever gets thrown my way. Mm -hmm. So I thought that'll be the main thing is working in this factory, but what an amazing story just outside the factory. You've got this town populated by Mexican Americans, Guatemalan Americans, and then those same people without the hyphenate, hyphenation who are, are not yet uh, legal, quote unquote. And then you've got a sort of residual class of middle-aged to older white people who um, kind of resent the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Like they've seen wages fall. They, they've seen their town go from uh, what they thought was pretty great to what they think is, gosh, not as great, right? So many people told me, we used to have 17 bars here in Skylar. And you think, (laughs) okay. (laughs) Now there's only three. And one's the Latino club. And you think, oh, yeah. Mm, That's that's a big change. Some people would call that an upgrade. There you go. Uh, No, people, it's pretty, it's hard on a lot of them. And, uh, you know, my, my second book is about a year of travel with Mexican workers. And so I was not immediately sympathetic. Uh, I'm sort of sympathetic to the, the sort of like white folks who right. were resentful of the changes. Right. You know, there's sort of a, re- a conservative reactionary quality to their resentment. On the other hand, you become an inspector and that's who you work with is people who grew up in this town and have seen it change. And, mm-hmm. There's a lot of moments where you, you in the story, you drop in these moments of resent, resentment or even, you know, racism 
you know, sort of couched in these different ways. Mm -hmm. Um, But you're dealing with these people every day. So you have to react to them as they make these comments. And so as the reporter who's there that no one knows is a reporter. Right. How do you react? I mean, do you do you laugh at the jokes? Do you push back on the jokes and say and you know yeah. what, what's your response no, to it's, people? It's a really good question, and I've got to say it's one of the hardest things in journalism is um, keeping your your opinions and your true thoughts to yourself long enough to hear anybody who disagrees with you express themselves fully. Right? Isn't that the job? You want this person to speak openly without fear of being judged. And if it's a um, pro-life preacher in Kansas who entertains opinions that are contrary to my own, am I, am I going to hide my own opinions so that I can hear him out? Yes. And I think that's what a good journalist has to do. It's not um, emotionally satisfying to listen to things you disagree with. And sometimes it's not as simple as someone who uh, doesn't believe in abortion rights. It's someone who's a racist. It's the person inside Sing Sing prison saying, how many, uh, how many correction officers does it take to push a prisoner down the stairs? A joke I was told one day, I, I don't know how many does it take? None. He fell. <laughs> yeah. Right. So you hear it and you go, yeah. But you think I'm going to remember this tonight when I get home, I'm going to take a note, but, but right now I'm not going to go, you jerk. How could you tell a joke like that? That, that doesn't get you anywhere. Next question. Is there some emotional cost to dis, to withholding your true reaction? And I think there might be, mm-hmm. you know, um, if you look at it uncharitably, you could say a reporter has to dissemble, has to actively pretend to be different from how he is in order to do this kind of reporting. And, um, and there's a degree of truth in that, and that's probably the hardest part of a project like this because on the one hand, I want to empathize with, a peop- with my cohort. I'm an inspector. I've got a badge in my pocket. I've got a hard hat on. I've got sore arms. And we're we're talking about pain during our first break of the morning. These are your people. They're they're also the only people that have your back in that environment. Absolutely right. And, um, And so I identify with them. On the other hand, the way, the only way I can write about it is to reserve some part of my identity as the writer, as the self-conscious participant who, who's doing this for a while but is going to quit eventually. And it's that part of me that remembers what I'm hearing is kind of strange, right? It's like that part of me that's thinking, what would interest my friends about this? It's, it's, it's that sort of essential part of my sensibility that's going to let me write the story. And... And I think time and again, I've been thinking about this lately, I'll live a different life for a while. And I think it's a willingness to commit to that that gives what I do any chance of value. Hmm. I mean, I think I have to do that. It's why I still think of correction officers in the first person plural, because that was 
that's what we did, right? Yeah. It's kind of weird, but I think each time, like, my identity's a rubber band, and it can stretch that way, and it can stretch this way, and when I come home, it come it goes mostly back into the shape where it began, but not completely. And it's that not completely that uh, is interesting and makes me who I am. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so I, I want to go back a little bit. So you did your math courses, and then... They just say, you've got the job, you've got to, they know you're in New York, right? So yeah, they, say, they don't. You got the job, so you got to move here. They, what they do is when an opening comes up, um, some regional manager looks at the list of people who've, who've uh, put that down as one of their preferences. And sooner or later, someone wants to give you a try. Then you have to sort of do, jump through more hoops. You have to pass medical tests that try to screen out carpal tunnel and, mm. And then, yeah, I got a special call that said, um, I, I mean, I see you live in the, in the Bronx and you realize you're going to have to relocate to Nebraska and, and there's, um, you know, we don't have money for that. Are you, and I said, you know, I'm ready. I, uh, I could use a break from New York. I'm, I'm from that part of the country. I'm ready to, to go back for a while. And that's it. All things that are true. Which is important. If you make something up, then you have to remember what you made up. And it doesn't feel as good to leave a trail of made-up things. You want to connect with people on as authentic a level as you can. So, um, you know, the day Stan is saying, so you went to college? Like, really? And, and he wants to know details. And I don't want to tell him details. And so I say, you know, let, let's talk about it another time. And he's cool with that. And even like credits me for not bragging. So I, truly, I do not um, want to actively mislead anybody. On the other hand, here I am from New York. What am I doing in rural Nebraska? People, I'm, I'm kind of a fish out of water. Mm -hmm. And uh, but people fill in that question with their own answer. Like, um, <clears throat> you know, he probably had some, he has some troubled past. Who knows? He's recovering alcoholic or he's, away from who something. knows what it is. Right. America's full of people trying to figure out a second act or a third act and, and running away, as you say. So it's not, it's not like I was asked every day. And how ready were you for what actually the inside of the slaughterhouse was like? I mean, it, yeah. In my journalist hat, I interviewed some inspectors mm -hmm. on the phone. Um, the, the USDA itself provides videos online to keep people who would be upset by the kind of work you do from applying. They want you to know this is what you're getting into. So insofar as I could, I prepared myself. But I think what I... And in fact, I did exercises. I used elastic bands to strengthen my forearms because really? I knew this was a possibility that I was, you know, going to suffer from some repetitive stress injury. So I got s as strong as I could, but it wasn't strong enough. Uh, um, I was okay for two or three weeks and then, uh, then the pain really set in and, and it doesn't go away. You, it's like you work through it. You figure out how to carry on despite it but 
You know, I mean, that to a certain extent, I think that was part of the surprise of the story was that if you know the topic of the story and then you, you kind of know, as I did even when I started it, oh, you, you've worked undercover, as a, that it was really an expose of the conditions of how meat is produced. And there's certainly an element of understanding that. But actually, it's just about physical work. A lot of it's just about physical yeah. work and what that's like. And for me, I don't know how to describe this, but I was thinking of it like, this is Ted Conover's most recent undercover project. But then it's just getting a job. It's got a job. <laughs> it's getting a job. It's trying to see if I can do it. And it's noticing that the people around me who do it actually are working pretty hard and have worked hard for years and have gotten little credit for being able to go back to something really sort of soul draining year after year after year. But yeah, just to keep on in a job like that there's something kind of admirable and I, you know, probably if I had any prayer of generating the publicity that Upton Sinclair did when he first wrote about meat factory conditions, I would have, you know, I'd be better at finding shit on the meat. I'd be better at exposing some horrific negligence, but I, it's not, expose frankly that interests me so much is just the the facts of of this being a workplace and how strange that is to work in a football field sized room that smells like blood you know it's humid in there it's hot and these gigantic carcasses are just moving by in slow motion all day long you know, 5,000 a day. It's just, it's an astonishing thing all by itself without scandal. It's, it's just an amazement to see a place like that and to think about the morality of, of killing that many animals and of the lives of those animals and then of the lives of the many hundreds of people who work there and brandish knives and kind of wreck their bodies in order to make a, a decent wage for a few years. And um, there's just so much to think about. And it's it's fascinating all by itself. And the the people that you interact with, I mean, there's all these interesting characters in there. There's the your sort of inspector that you start with who uh, is Latino, Latina. Right. Um, and, and then there's this guy, Lefty. <laughs> like, there's this, like, really interesting people and then of course for the reader there's this question of uh what are these people going to think yeah. when the article comes out yeah, and exactly. you even, when you're leaving you have you kind of have this scene where you're sort of asking you what you're going to do and why you're leaving and you're kind of like well i want to go back to my family which was true and that i had an opportunity for another teaching job which was true right like you tell them true true uh reasons but but you know they're gonna they're gonna figure it out yeah and yeah. and so I guess the obvious question is, have you communicated with any of them since yeah. it came out? In fact, I might pass you my iPhone in a second, show you the text messages I got from Carolina on the day she received uh, an advanced copy of the magazine because um, I wanted the people I was closest to to be the first ones to read the piece. Um, I sent them all early copies and said, here's the article I told you I was going to write. And had they communicated with fact checkers? And that so I had, you know, a month before then, I had 
been in touch with all of them and said, I've written my article. It's going to come out in a magazine called Harper's. And somebody from there might call you to say, did Conover get it right? And um, if you'd talk to him, that'd be great. And I think only a couple of them uh, did talk to the fact checkers. Hmm. Uh, my supervisor quickly decided this was probably forbidden by the rules about contact with media. And he referred the fact checkers to you know up the management chain. Um, but then management actually entertained a long series of questions from Harper's about uh, what a media inspector's job entails. And, and so uh, I got fact-checked. Um, to my knowledge, the people I've written about <clears throat> are okay with it. I changed their name, so none of them, you know, I hope feel their privacy was violated. Um, there's a certain something that is, you know, I can't pretend I can quickly recover from, which is them knowing I didn't tell them everything. Mm -hmm. But I think, you know, generally speaking, <clears throat> I give them credit for doing a hard job conscientiously. I say they did it a lot better than I did. I, ha I have no airs about my superiority in any way. They were... Like, I was fairly inept at this job. I, I needed their help all the time to keep my knife sharp, to, you know, to just to, to do my bit. People did so much to help me. And, um, and every day I told them I appreciated it. So I kind of think the aftermath of a project like this depends a lot on, on the conduct of a person while it's happening. I mean, knock wood somebody could flip out when they read this and think bastard, you know, you really, you're, you're a total spy and a rat. And I, I would not fault them. <clears throat> On the other hand, I don't, I don't approach these things like a narc thinking I'm going to nail you guys. It's not like that. It's more like I want to learn something I couldn't learn any other way. Mm -hmm. And so I hope you won't be too annoyed um, with the result. I guess I should say spoiler alert for people. People should read the, hopefully they've read the article before they even listen to this. <laughs> so it's not too much of a spoiler, but you know, the natural place that this article leads is you giving up meat at the end. That is the, that is the pat ending of the story. Uh, and then it doesn't work out that way. And I feel like that is, that was, that's a really interesting moment in this piece. Okay. So I truly thought that's where it would end. And in fact, my wife told our kids, uh, a couple weeks before I came home, she made this stir fry dish that it's a family favorite. You know, it's got um, strips of stir fried beef and string beans. She said, "You kids better enjoy it because it's it's the last one we're gonna have." <laughs> <laughs> Your dad is not gonna be eating meat, and um, and I did not eat beef the whole time I worked there. I just lost my appetite for it, and then uh, I quit. And when I told Stan I'd be leaving town in a couple of days, he said, oh, before you go, let's, you know, let's have dinner. I want to show you this place we go. I had no idea until I actually, uh, I was the last one to cut a piece of this, this medium rare T-bone steak and raise it to my mouth. And the minute I did, it, it was so mouthwateringly good. It was like a pleasure 
it tasted so good and I was so, A, happy to have eaten it, B, ashamed to have eaten it. Because what kind of a, what kind of a witness am I if, how profoundly have I been paying attention if I still want to eat this thing? And um, I try not to uh, soul search at too much length in the piece, but uh, I've thought about it a lot. Why? What's that about? And I just think it's because that's what I was fed when I was a kid. You know, that was a, our, my, our parents thought no meal, no dinner was complete without meat. Mm-hmm. And um, I eat less meat now, but I still like it and so i try to avoid ground beef which is has a higher chance of of being contaminated with something and um and buy organic uh when possible but organic beef is super expensive you know you go to whole foods and it's a fortune and um so the answer is that i um i'm I'm sort of sheepish about it a funny word uh I don't, um, I'm not proud that I still eat meat and I kind of admire my vegan friends who, who are better able, I guess, to control their appetites or act in this, uh, fully ethical way. But I, I, I actually think that your, what happened to you will reflect what happens to a lot of the readers. I would include myself in that category. I remember reading a story in Harper's it's got to have been 10 years ago about the way chickens were treated full feature. I can't remember who wrote uh, it about the way chickens were treated and saying, I'm not getting any more chicken. Yeah. And then I don't even remember the moment when that stopped happening and right. it probably was like a week. Right. And that the, it does. I mean, it takes a real discipline to stop eating meat, but there also is a way in which you can be so exposed to something that seems awful and you're complicit in it and then that that can fade really quickly in the face of an emotional connection to something right or in the face of being part of a social world where they're not like big deal of course we eat beef in fact you can get it at a discount on fridays (laughs) from that truck in the lot and there's a guy i worked with he worked in a hot dog factory and i said to him you still eat hot dogs he goes oh i'm now and then (laughs) (laughs) so it's like you know, they're in the heartland. There's, they're not going to have any of this. <laughs> but you mentioned, you mentioned your family. I feel like you, you do address this in New Jack a little bit, sort of like the impact it has on your family, although it's more in the context of being a prison guard and the impact that has on your family as opposed to, like, what, undercover reporting or that. Yeah. But, but uh, you know, I am curious, uh, to the extent you want to talk about it, like, when you just sort of say... Uh, I'm going to work as a meat inspector for two months in Nebraska. Has it been long enough now that your whole family is sort of like, well, that's what dad does. Uh, or is there still a sort of, oh, do you have to do it that way? Can't you just report it? Yeah. Way? So it's funny. And it was a huge fear factor for me when I was thinking of getting married. I thought, you know, this is something I've done. Um, uh, this is what I do. I, I go away. I, I live a different way. I write about it. Um, if I get married, will I be able to do that? And, and if I have kids, will I still want to do that? And it's, it's like, it's pretty gigantic set of questions there. But, um, I'm super, uh, fortunate to have a wife who, who early on knew, uh, about what I do. In fact, she um, 
she'd heard me on NPR before we ever met. <laughs> and uh, that's the only way I could have met her. <laughs> <laughs> and, she's, and she's not a worrier about me. So she knows that there might be some kind of wild cowboy. I don't know. Is there something swashbuckling about doing this? It might look like it from the outside, but in fact, from the inside, I do everything I can to minimize risk. Mm -hmm. I do not want to come home unable to type for the next six months, right? I do not want to come home from prison with anger and violent tendencies that are going to poison my family life. I don't want to come home from any of my trips to research roads for my book, Mm -hmm. The Roots of Man, with, you know, having been in a car accident or any, I want to keep life interesting, but I do not want to get hurt. And so our kind of baseline agreement is I won't do war reporting. And um, I had to turn down a embedded slot with men's journal uh, when we invaded Iraq. I, I just reflexively said yes when they asked me. And then I told her and she said, huh? And, um, and I said, oh yeah, <laughs> you're right. Okay. And I was a little bit bummed, but I don't know. She somehow believes I'm going to come home in one piece and the kids are, are used to it. And the, the last big piece then is how you change when you have kids. Cause you don't want to be away for a year. You don't even want to be away for six months. I was away for about two months to research this story. When I worked at Sing Sing, I could commute so I could be home every day. I mean, I'd be wasted when I got home. I'd be so tired and they wouldn't always see me because I had strange shifts, but I was never like absent for days at a time. And, um, and so you kind of find ways to, to manage, uh, but it's not automatic and it's not easy. And there's, adjustments you have to make all along the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you mentioned being uh, just completely exhausted when you get home from being a prison guard. And it seems like it's probably true to some extent in this job as well. So how do you do the note taking and, yeah. and keeping up with, cause you can't take notes in front of everyone all day. Right. Um, right. H- how do you just like logistically deal with that? Sure. Issue? So, you know, in, in prison, part of my required gear was a little notebook to keep in my pocket so I could write down prisoner, prisoner numbers or, um, you know, infractions, what cell number, blah, blah, blah. And sneaking into my office in the back of our house up in, in Riverdale and sitting at my computer, uh, was a way of transitioning back to my family self like I would just unburden myself with the day's events and um, and a few notes I would take. So that joke I told about a prisoner falling down the stairs. I'm so bad at remembering jokes. I, I would write that down. I'd write down nicknames and phrases, quotes, things people had said that I was afraid I'd forget. But the other stuff, like the guy punching the other guy, I, I'm going to remember that at least till the end of the day when I can type it out and I type it out without regard for grammar or punctuation. And then, so that would then help me return to being a dad and 
being decent to my kids. In Nebraska, I was alone, so there wasn't that imperative to unburden, and my hands were super sore. Mm-hmm. But I would usually take, um, you know, some additional ibuprofen and have a beer, and then type the day's main reporting into my computer, and then be done with it. I really think um, you need time. You need to unburden yourself, and then you need time to relax. And um, again, working in this factory, I would go to the bathroom if I had to take notes or something, hmm. right? I mean. And uh, you worked on this. I mean, this project dates back to the most recent one, a couple of years. Mm-hmm. You took correspondence college courses for it. Yeah. You took months. You were months there, plus scouting, plus all of this. And so without literally asking you like how much you got paid <laughs> like what, what what is the sort of financial calculation of a project like this that seems like it's such a long-term endeavor and do you even think of it that way do you do you think of this sort of like financial return versus time invested oh, you Just... have to of course you have to if you're a self-employed writer um something i've been able to do with many of my projects is um is get work as part of the research. So I'm earning money while I'm a prison guard, while I'm working in the slaughterhouse, um, while I'm driving a taxi in Aspen, uh, or I'm doing something that's practically free, like riding the rails. Riding the rails. Yeah. Sneaking across the border. Right. Right. I mean, if you're doing it right, you're not spending very much money. And then you have to figure out how to pay the bills when you're back in real life. It gets harder when you have um, a family and as I have uh, grown as a writer, you know, accumulated books, I found other ways to, uh, to support myself. So additional streams of income. So Harper's paid me very nicely for this article, but not in advance. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, so I augment my income uh, with teaching at, uh, at NYU, uh, summer writers conferences, um, I have a lecture agent, and I give talks at colleges mainly. Various gigs that pay something, and that you hope they all add up to a living. Mm-hmm. If you have a spouse with medical insurance through her job, that's a real plus. Um, <laughs> but that's a, that's a good. Uh, they should teach that in journals. <laughs> I know how to finding find a spouse with health insurance. Yeah, there that you can go. Be an entire semester class. Exactly. Um, you also do, I mean, you do plenty of non-undercover, straight-ahead journalism. You had this piece, I think it was in Atlantic, about snitch, a snitch. Oh, yeah, New York Times like Magazine. A, New York Times Magazine, yeah. yeah. A multi-layered piece about uh, somebody who is basically snitching on the cops. I can't even begin to describe <laughs> it. But, um, but I guess two questions. One is, if you could do... This sort of undercover reporting is maybe not the right term for it. I don't know what term participatory. You use. Participatory, yeah, immersive, maybe. Yeah. Um, would you do that all the time? Do you like balancing it with these other pieces? And then the second question, which is, I remember from New Jack that you you actually tried to re- approach it as a straight ahead story, and you couldn't get access. And right. So you kind of decided to do it this way. Is it always an option? I guess is it sort of like an always option a way around the reporting? Huh. Yeah. So. I mean, sure, there's lots of ways I could write about meat or slaughterhouses um, that don't involve becoming a USDA inspector. But 
Am I going to learn things by doing it this way that I couldn't learn any other way? Yes. Am I going to have a sort of essential, visceral experience um, that is maybe going to change me in some way? I'd say there's a good chance. So, you know, it's so hard to make a living as a writer, and it's so hard to bring readers to quote unquote important subjects, right? It's it's this um, it's this perplexing puzzle that journalists face, especially young journalists who are interested in it because they can write about important things, mm-hmm. or things that matter. They want to write about things that matter, and it turns out a lot of readers aren't aren't there. You know? A lot of editors, consequently, are not there also. <laughs> exactly. So I'm always thinking, is there a way I could approach this that would that would bring some appeal? And sometimes for me, it's a transgressive appeal. Like, could I get in there and do that? And might the process involve gaming the system somehow, Right. Just could the access itself be an interesting story? Mm. And I like it when it is. There's something um, immature about me that is still interested in um, sneaking around rules and uh, and getting past authority figures. Um, and I'm now in my 50s, and I don't know. Uh, I should grow out of it soon. Um, but it's still there. <laughs> it doesn't happen by now. It seems, that seems unlikely. Yeah. So it's interesting, just just as this is coming out, it's actually been in the news, the, the Midwestern states passing laws yeah. about uh, preventing people from documenting things inside of these slaughterhouses. Was that something you'd known about or thought about? Or yeah, does well, Nebraska have one? They're considering one. Ah. They haven't passed it. But as you know, these laws have been proliferating over the last couple years. And I've been worried about it since I first had the idea because, you know, so much of what we know about meat production lately comes from animal rights activists and their hidden camera videos. And they have been masters of getting in places and just you know, totally in the public interest, I think, casting light on these agricultural practices that bear scrutiny. And the laws target them. They target video and and photography. But not, but there's a couple, like one um, proposed in Arkansas, make any sort of quote-unquote unofficial investigation of animal cruelty a crime. Hmm. And even as a government employee, I could be accused of conducting an unofficial investigation. And um, so I was very worried about those the whole time I was waiting for this to happen. And the very existence of these laws is such an outrage. I mean, I can't imagine they'd pass a, a constitutional test of, you know, First Amendment. Anyway, anyway that's another like, discussion, yeah. but I they're outrageous. And I think the first idealistic young people who are prosecuted under these laws are going to make the meat industry wish that instead of killing the messenger, they had cleaned their house. They Mm -hmm. had uh, gotten rid of the abuses that make these factories so attractive to people worried about the treatment of animals. Mm -hmm. I mean, keeping the press out is exactly the wrong thing to do. Mm Mm-hmm. 
yeah, I think uh, they need to to fix uh, fix the way they treat animals, and and then the problem will solve itself. And you you mentioned Upton Sinclair briefly, and the jungle. I think it comes up once in the story, but what that was what he he was also worked undercover for the basis of the novel. Yeah, right? exactly right. It's a novel, but he he went in as a working man, lunch pail and hidden notebook to see it firsthand. Yeah, everyone thinks it's journalism, but it was a novel with incredible verisimilitude because he had gone in and done the research. So It's just sort of remarkable that it's you're sort of working in the same tradition but so long afterwards on the exact same subject. Well, and in fact, my employer, my job exists because of his novel. It was The Jungle and the outrage it provoked that established the FDA and and federal meat inspection back in whatever 19 well, the first decade of the 20th century. And and so that's how I could get this job. And no, I'm by no means the first person since Sinclair to do this either, you know. Um, but none of us have come close to Upton Sinclair in achieving the public outcry over what goes on there. Right. And uh, so there's still work to do. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks so much for doing this. There's so many things we didn't talk about. We barely talked about Rolling Nowhere. You just it came up once. <laughs> so um, you have to agree that you'll come back and do another one. Anytime. Okay. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Evan. Thanks for listening to Longform Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff of Atavist. My co-hosts are Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer of Longform. Our fantastic editor is Lauren Kirchner. And special thanks to the great Ted Conover for joining us this week. Uh, you can catch us next week, same place. Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, (laughs) but they choose to do it. In the new docuseries Running Sucks, brought to you by Teen Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Teen Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.